Good morning, church. I want to introduce our storyteller for today, Jake Finnefrock. Jay, start coming up. Everybody lives such interesting lives, and uh, tapping into just a person's set of stories is, is kind of an amazing experience, and I'm excited to have Jake share some of his stories. Thanks, Jake. Good morning. Thank you, Peter. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. As a university student, I came to a place where the truth of Christ's resurrection became undeniably real. I was suddenly motivated to find truth and seek it above all else. Long I stood. The resurrection of my spirit brought me to a crossroads. The way I saw it, I could invest in myself and pursue the American dream, working towards retirement, or I could give up what was familiar to go into the parts of the world where Christ was unknown, to share the hope that was in me. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, for it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that, the passing there had worn them really about the same. Monica, my passion clone, set out with me on this path. She's the very young-looking one there in the front. First to Kenya, to a tribe in the middle of the Kenyan wastelands for a two-year project, after which we returned to the U.S. for the birth of our son, Creed. During that time at home, I set out on a scouting trip with a young man named David, a college student who had also chosen the path that wanted wear and desired to take the gospel to a place called the Coconut Islands. The Coconut Islands, a pseudonym, are a 100% Muslim country where Sharia law exists. Christian residents are imprisoned, and foreign Christians who live openly are prohibited. Though foreign adventure seekers are welcome. So David and I went to dive and surf for a month to get a feel for the 1,200 islands and pray for an opportunity for David to re-enter, to live and work and make disciples. I met a guy named Muhammad. He was an opponent of mine during a game of chess in the park. Muhammad made special arrangements for us to go to his home island through some connections of his in the government. In 2004, foreigners were not allowed to go to resident islands. We spent a week floating, a weekend floating in a blue lagoon with his small son. We spoke of Islam, of politics, of his marriage gone sour, of political oppression, of the joy of fatherhood, of hope, and of friendship. We ate coconuts, and when we said goodbye, we embraced, and I left him at the airstrip on Pedro Island with my travel chess set, never to see him again. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, the first I kept for another day, yet knowing how way <clears throat> leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. David, <clears throat> along with his new bride, eventually made it to the Coconut Islands. As a university language student, he learned the language and began exploring business opportunities with local leaders who had befriended him. Monica, Creed, and I moved to China, where we were eventually joined by Chloe and Lincoln. 
Monica and I learned Mandarin, and during our first two years there, I conducted an experiment in a mountain village school where the children were first taught to read and write in their own language instead of starting in the national language of Mandarin. The project was a resounding success that had the ability to revolutionize education in that region. During this time, we were sharing the story of Christ with a number of our friends and colleagues who were curious about our faith and life. We never needed to convince anyone of the truth of Christianity. People came to us having crashed upon the bankrupt shores of atheism and been confined by the sometimes brutal form of Marxism. Without hope and striving for truth, they came to us for encouragement, prayer, teaching, and discipleship. Monica healed wounds as a nurse and cared for the sick. I strive to open minds and shed light on a scientific approach to learning language. The project, though, was permanently closed in 2011, despite the great results and the petitions of village leaders. Through the process of fighting for the project to continue, we gained an advocate in a solitary man within the state education department who saw our results and believed in the method. He and I fought together for nearly a year, and we eventually won a huge battle. Our project would be implemented in a neighboring county. We signed a 10-year agreement with the Education Bureau. The teachers and parents celebrated, and we began to operate. Imagine our elation. However, just prior to this, the government informed me that I could no longer live in the region unless I had an advanced degree, which I didn't have, or was accepted to an advanced degree program. So I applied and was accepted to a distance program in the UK, and our village project was to be the focus of my PhD studies. But PhD programs are accompanied by something called tuition, and we weren't exactly rolling in the dough. In a drastic twist to the storyline, I decided to start a small travel business to pay for the tuition. So in 2012, I took a group of high-end Chinese entrepreneurs to my childhood home of Alaska for a seven-day outdoor adventure tour. Back in China, in the early part of 2013, six months into our 10-year project, on the first day of teacher training, the county police showed up at the village school and shut down the training on the grounds that it wasn't safe for outsiders to be in the village. <laughs> they stated that, among other things, the villagers were akin to barbarians and that the conditions were too cold for foreigners. Apparently, they had never heard of Alaska. We appealed to the highest levels, but after several months of pleading the case the project, uh, for the project, the word was final. The program would be terminated. No more teaching, no more progress, no more village case study for me to research. The project advocate, smited by his own leaders, refused in protest to report to work for the remaining six months before his retirement. These were dark days for me. You could say it was like the valley of the shadow of death. The sense that everything I had invested in was being purposefully opposed was stifling. Weren't we supposed to succeed? Wasn't God's hand in our work? Hadn't we left everything for God's sake? Or hadn't we left everything for God's sake? I'm not sure how to read that. <laughs> and given our lives to the service of others, shouldn't God be blessing this work? Didn't he know that kids were stagnating under some of the worst educational methods on the planet? I felt like I was a lifeguard, handcuffed on the beach and forced to watch children drown. I lived silently in torment, 
had we taken a wrong turn on this path that wanted wear. But we were determined to carry on in our work. I switched the focus of my research slightly and continued to look for alternatives for our family in China. The truth was, though, that we were exhausted and doors were closing all around us. Monica's spiritual ministry was abounding, but without a legal platform for us to stand on, our days in China were clearly numbered. At the same time, through word of mouth, clients kept coming to Alaska year after year in the summers. And by 2014, by the end of the fourth tour, I had completely paid for the PhD program. We ended up taking a sabbatical from our work in 2014 to allow me to work on writing my thesis. As doors for our work continued to be closed in China, one way led on to way, and we found ourselves here in Mercer Island. You could say we were dazed and confused by this turn of events. We wanted to be out there on the front lines, not back here at home. We wanted to live and serve among the world's poor, not live in comfort among the world's wealthiest. Were we really on the right path? We consistently asked this question and asked for signs that we were indeed following and not barging on ahead. As God was nourishing us through counseling and spiritual care and friendships, he was also providing for us in miraculous ways. First, a home fell into our lap, figuratively. Then we found a church family, then schools for our children, and the continued provision through the tour company. Through the noise of grief and turmoil, a piercing tone rang clear, and we decided finally to stay in America and not return to China. How, we asked, would we ever make our way in this place? In 2016, I was asked to prepare an itinerary in Alaska for a group of travel professionals. Nearly 1,000 delegates of the Adventure Travel Trade Association, or the ATTA, were in Alaska for their annual summit, and I reluctantly agreed to host a group of them pro bono on one of my tours. One of the members of my tour strongly suggested I stay for the meetings, which I hadn't intended on doing. It turns out that at the summit, the keynote speaker was a guy that I went to college with, and I had strongly encouraged him to date his eventual wife. He introduced me to the CEO of the ATTA. The CEO, turns out, is a fellow believer, an SPU grad, which is also my alma mater. The ATTA wanted help developing the China market, and when they learned that I worked with Chinese adventure travelers, they hired me as a consultant, and then later as their director of business development for Asia. Weird, huh? It gets weirder. Remember David? He started a company in the Coconut Islands, but due to serious illness and some developmental issues with his child, he was forced to return to the US. The company, which carried on without David, is the first foreign-owned enterprise in the Coconut Islands, and they are producing gourmet seafood for the high-end Chinese market. They were granted rights to a lagoon on a remote island to start their aquaculture farm. They need to nail the Chinese market in order for their business to grow and for their team to maintain a viable presence in this Muslim country. In March this year, David asked me to serve on the company advisory board. I accepted. Also in March this year, a colleague of mine at the ATTA was at a trade show in Berlin and was approached by the director of tourism of the, can you guess? Coconut Islands. They invited the ATTA to help their country develop adventure tourism. 
In June, they paid all expenses for me to fly to the Coconut Islands to attend a series of meetings focused on tourism development. Well, there, I flew to the aquaculture farm to see David's operation firsthand. Imagine my surprise when I stood in a lagoon on Pedro Island, the same Pedro Island that I had visited with Muhammad 14 years previous. Imagine my wonder when I introduced the director of tourism of the Coconut Islands to David's company and their excitement that there was a local product from their country that they could sell to high-end Chinese tourists that have been flocking to their resorts. Ponder for a moment the level of detail in this plan and the number of turns along this 20-year road that had me standing knee-deep in that moment. And so we carry on down this path not sure what the next bend will bring, but curious of the route, emboldened by the promises we have seen fulfilled and elated by the symphony of events that we have been part of thus far. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Thank you. This morning, our scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading verses 9 and 10 from chapter 7 in the New American Standard Bible. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. The word of the Lord. Would you bow your heads with me? I just want to pray for Jake and his family. God, we thank you so much for your finger in the Finn of Frock's lives. Thank you that you have been their guide and their shield and their provider. Thank you that our paths have crossed. I lift this family up to you and ask you to continue to transition them well to this next stage of life that you have for them. And I know that it too will be the road less traveled as you lead them and as you continue to supply all their needs. I thank you for them and I pray for them in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, my name is Peter, I'm one of the pastors here, and the title of today's sermon is The Redemption Narrative. I want to begin by asking this question, is redemption real? You know, this idea that I think is kind of a universal craving. We long for redemption, whether we believe in God, whether we believe in other forces at work. For some reason, we can't really get this need out of our system, out of our culture. Everyone, I think, is really longing for redemption. But the question is, is it real? Can good really come out of bad? Do good things really happen from bad things? 
Or are we just sort of piecing things together to make a story for ourselves? And that's the question I want to ask today. As I begin, I really feel compelled to invoke the second law of thermodynamics again. And uh, you've heard me reference this, but I want to kind of deep dive into it. And if you can store this away, you'll understand sort of where I come from, because I think about this almost on a daily basis. So the definition that I have for us, and it is such a um, powerful law that governs our existence that it's, uh, you know, depicted as the Ten Commandments here on, on the tablets. The entropy, it says, of a closed system shall never decrease and shall increase whenever possible. And just to get uh, make it simple, there's, there's a more technical definition and in different contexts that define it. But the word entropy for our intent and purposes will be uh, chaos. So the chaos of a closed system shall never decrease. So that means that chaos is always increasing whenever possible. So nothing gets better. Everything by law gets worse. Material things, spiritual things, relational things, relationships, the condition of your plumbing, the roof, your car, organizational structure, mission statements, whatever you could possibly think of in existence is always, by law, getting worse. That's one of the most powerful forces that you and I are forced to live under. Nobody today naturally has less wrinkles than they did yesterday. Your body is getting worse. In fact, your body today is the best it will ever be for the rest of your life. Because it's getting worse. You are the most beautiful looking right now. Because of the second law of thermodynamics, right? Uh, scientifically speaking, they say that there are pockets within a closed system that could actually be getting better. But for it to get better, it has to draw the better from somewhere else, which then gets just as worse in proportion to the thing that's getting better so that the sum total of the system is always getting worse. And so we experience this. Like you might be thanking God for something you have, but that comes at the expense of somebody else who had to give it. Nothing is going to get better in the system. This planet is a system. Your life is a system. Your ecosystem is a system. And all of it is getting worse. Sometimes it can look or feel like it's getting better. You have some kind of value add, but that's because there's a value subtraction somewhere else. Somebody is always paying the price and everything is getting worse. I, uh, I've shared this story before. And I, ex I experience now in retrospect everything that's happened, that happened to my family during my sabbatical with the car to be amazing. I think about the ways that God used that incident in our life. And I'm thankful today. I really do think it's amazing because when we were there on the side of the road, 
just having crossed over a bridge that I thought we were going to go over. And we were just right there at the very first possible space after that bridge. And then right as we were standing there, a fireman, a retired fireman came by. He stopped his car. He did a U-turn, came into our space and inquired if we needed help. And then right after that, a state trooper came by, and they both stayed, and they both tried physically to try to get the wheel off and to help us, and then they drove us home. They brought our stuff with them together, and then they gave us their personal cell phone number so that we can call them in case we need to go grocery shopping. And in the days ahead, they kept checking in. Are you guys okay? Do you need any help? Anything we can do? And then after that, the tow truck driver I, I, I share this story. He just felt like God visited him. Just in the hour and a half that we were together, we had an amazing conversation. There were tears. There were confessions being made. And I wasn't trying to be religious. I wasn't trying to be a pastor. He just felt touched by God through that experience. And then the mechanics and then Costco and then the car rental place, everybody chipped in to help out. And it was an amazingly powerful experience for us, but here's the caveat. The reason our family was able to experience such positivity out of such negativity is because all of those players inputted into our situation. They created a local net positive situation for us. We got warmer because they got colder. We got richer because they got poorer. We were saved because their hours and minutes died for us. That's the way the world works. There is no plus without a minus somewhere. You've heard uh, this phrase before, everything happens for a reason. How many of you believe, and this is a trick question, so feel free to be shy. How many of you believe this is true, that everything happens for a reason? Okay. Next, how about this phrase? It'll all work out. How many of you believe this? All of you are just dead wrong. <laughs> you knew that was coming. You still raised your hands. The reason these sentences don't make sense in my brain is because it violates the second law of thermodynamics. Everything cannot all work out for everyone. It just can't be true. It's not thermodynamically possible. It violates the most fundamental laws of physics. There is no way it can happen because all of these sentiments, they're born out of an impulse, a longing that we have. And I don't deny that we have the longing, but the longing itself does not acknowledge who does the inputting for you to get the output. How do you get a positive when everything is tending towards negative? It's because I think there is an input source, an author, Somebody with infinite energy, somebody who is energy, somebody who never runs out, who's outside of our closed system that is inputting into our system so that not everything happens for a reason, but there is a divine orchestrator, a personality, a love, a power, 
an author, a provider, a lord, a king. A ground of being that loves and cares, that's inputting. And so not everything happens for a reason, but he is able to use everything for his reasons. And that's very different than everything happens for a reason. Nothing just happens for any reason, except because everything is just tending towards chaos and decay and eventual death. See, our whole, not just our planet, not just our solar system, but the entire universe, we're all cooling down. We're all headed towards thermal death. Except, except there is an author who is inputting, who continues to write this story out. And this is the biblical word, redemption. When the Bible talks about salvation, when the Bible talks about the death of death, what is it talking about? It's talking about God who is outside of our closed system, our universe, our existence, who is inputting into our universe, who is working all things for the good in an intelligent, wise, loving, all-seeing way, orchestrating everything. And I believe that you and I and every human being we've ever known, we long for this because we long for God. We know that without this outside input, we are all tending towards death. That is what we know to be true about life. And the only alternative to having such a God in the world who is always righting wrongs, whose economy is efficient and perfect, who is the only one capable of wiping every tear away. We have to ask, well, where does the tear go? Who is able to absorb the tears? How can my bad story turn into a redemptive narrative? How does that happen? And our answer is God. The human alternative is to borrow from each other until they all just die eventually at the end. And so that's what the passage tells us today in verse 10. The sorrow of the world produces death. On a physics level, this is true. Everything is tending towards death, thermal death. We are all tending there. Spiritually, this is true. That somehow, at some point in the history of creation, something shifted. This law came into effect and everything started tending towards death and decay. And God had a plan. And so we have verse 9 and 10. It says this, For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, Leading to salvation. I don't know where you are today, but it's my thesis statement that God is the lone source outside of our closed system that inputs into our system to turn the clock back, to intervene, to orchestrate, to work all things for the good, to bring life out of death, 
to turn an instrument of death and curse into a symbol of life and blessing. This cross behind me, this symbol defies the laws of thermodynamics. Nothing else, because it's all part of the system, can do that. Nothing can lift itself up out of it. Something outside. Something that doesn't need to stand on any platform because he is the ground of being. He can lift you and me and our whole world and our history out of its intended, normal, well-deserved trajectory. I want you to think about this for a second. Is there anyone, anything that you know of theoretically or actually, that you believe can pull humanity out of this trajectory. If you had to bet your money on something, what would it be? What would you put your money on? There is an economy of God at work in our world. And it's not just Christians. You know, the Sermon on the Mount tells us that God loves everyone, that he causes the sun to rise on the good and the evil. The sun, you know, that that we enjoy, it stands as a symbol of an energy source outside of planet Earth. It's shining energy into us. If there is sun death, there is earth death because we are wholly dependent on an energy source outside of planet Earth. That's just the way life is. But the sun itself, we know, is dying. And our solar system itself is dying. Our universe, as we know it, the observable universe, is dying. What can help? What can save us from this body of death? And it's the economy of God. It's what we call God's grace. Meaning, God gives to us knowing we cannot give back what we can't because he doesn't have any needs. But even if we could, he doesn't want us to because if we give back, then we die. We have nothing from which to give except to pay with our life. And so God says, I will pay with my life. You can't afford to give yours. You can't die for yourself. You are on trial. You can't decide anything about yourself. You are at the mercy of a system outside of your life, of yourself. And I don't know if you are here and you're not a Christian, what do you stand on? What do you believe inputs into your life? All you can do is borrow from somebody else. All you can do is grow at somebody else's expense. Uh, One of my favorite authors that I mention all the time is M. Scott Peck. And I actually loved my uh, interaction with his work this week. And I was thinking about, I read his biography, and he lived a horrendous life. His life was just a hot mess. It really was. He's not respectable if you look at his life. You have to sort of stay in his writings. We're all like that, you know. Our product is always imperfect. It's always embedded in imperfection, even if we have a good thing to offer. And so uh, M. Scott Peck, one of the reasons I like his story is because he was a Buddhist. When he started writing, he was a psychiatrist who uh, was a practicing Buddhist. And uh, he started writing this book, uh, which turned out to be one of the world's best-selling books. 
And uh, it's a book called The Road Less Traveled. Um, Jake, I didn't know you were going to quote that today. Um, but he wrote this book called The Road Less Traveled. And in the course of writing this book, he happened upon a section in his book called Serendipity or Grace. And he started thinking deeply about the reality of grace in his life. He said, you know, my life is such a hot mess. And yet I experience so much good. And he really began to be honest about this question. He thought, where does goodness come from? By any math that I know, when I add up my life, it should end in total destruction. But there's so much good. There's light and there's love and there's warmth and there's truth in my life. Where does it come from? And so as he began to honestly ponder this question, he became a Christ follower in the middle of writing this book. And so he starts the book as a Buddhist. And about halfway through, he becomes a brand spanking new Christian and has all these crazy ideas about how God works. Like thoughts about theories about God. And so he, with these wacky theories, he finishes the second half of his book. And then he never went back and changed anything. He just left it as it is. So when you read this uh, psychiatry book, you can actually read the story of his conversion. And I find that so fascinating and interesting. But I want to give you three highlights of his story. And this was his process. And this is what I'm presenting to you today. First is this, and this is what I would call his consider phase. And this is what I want to invite you to do. I want you to consider the evidence in your life. He says this, the fact that highly implausible events for which no cause can be determined within the framework of known natural law occur with implausible frequency has come to be known as the principle of synchronicity. There's actually a secular word for this idea of good coming out of bad. It's called synchronicity. We have no other way of explaining this. There's no natural math that lands us at the answer of our lives. Implausible events, highly implausible events, happen at such a frequency. It happens so frequently, you have to sort of stop and consider the evidence and go, who is inputting into my life? Because maybe it's that person who's inputting into my life, but then who's inputting into their life? Because there is this, the highly implausible events at such a high frequency happening to everyone. Who's behind it all? So you have to consider the evidence. That's the first phase he went through. And then secondly is the acknowledge phase. You have to acknowledge the conclusion. The evidence points to a conclusion. And the human heart, because we love control, we love to think we are on the throne. So we don't want to acknowledge this. So we have active rebellion against this truth. We have to suppress this truth that is so easily evident. He says it this way, with the learned capacity to recognize the gifts of grace, we will find that our journey is guided by the invisible hand and the unimaginable wisdom of God with infinitely greater accuracy than that of which our unaided conscious will is capable. There is a wisdom in the way we experience the highly implausible events happening at such a high frequency. 
It's not just random good things happening. The universe is just throwing lottery tickets at us. But there is a kind of perfect, unimaginable wisdom behind the way these grace gifts are deposited into our life. There's something about it that makes us go, oh my gosh, there's beauty here. There's design here. There is authorship here. What is that? How do I make sense of this? And you acknowledge, God, you do exist. God, you are good. God, you are the true and living God. That's the normal and natural conclusion when you just stop and look at the evidence. And then third, finally, is the trust phase. He says this, the existence of grace is evidence not only of the reality of God, but listen, but also of the reality that God's will is devoted to the growth of the individual human spirit. God is never accomplishing his will over there at the expense of you. That somehow each and every single person, because his infinite, because his wisdom is infinite, he can work all things for the good of all of us. He can do it. His ability to line things up, his ability to understand from start to finish. We talked about that last week. The long game, the infinite game, the ultimate game. He is able to see it all. And the Bible says he's the only one who understands the entire deal. You are not forgotten. He knows you by name. Every hair on your head numbered. And so you trust him. First, you consider And then you acknowledge, and then you trust. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. This isn't the the greatest story. It's not even just the most recent story. But I... uh, Last week, I uh, was watching uh, a show on Netflix. Uh, I don't know if any of you here grow up with Adam Sandler. Yeah, you know Adam Sandler? I kind of love this guy. And I'm not sure what it is. I think it's because he's always dressed like he lives in the 90s. You know? Just loose jeans and sweatpants and things. There's something so relatable to me about Adam Sandler. And he's not a perfect human being. He's not like some appropriate Christian person that should speak at church or something. But I just really like the humanity of Adam Sandler. And he put out this comedy special on Netflix. And in that special at the end, he was best friends with Chris Farley, who passed another comedian and actor. And he does this, he wrote this song for Chris Farley. And he shows all these images of Chris Farley's life. And the title of the song is My Boy Chris Farley. And I was watching and listening to this song, and I just was sitting there weeping. <laughs> because it's not about the stories of Chris Farley. But when Adam Sandler, you know, after uh, Chris Farley is, has died, writes this song, it's not just stories, but it's a narrative. It's the narrative. You see the arc. You see Chris Farley's story in the place of history. 
you see finally the meaning of his story in a way you couldn't while he was still alive. And so this is what's happening. We have this tiny little story. And then when Adam Sandler sings about Chris Farley, it becomes a narrative. And we understand Chris Farley in a way we never could before. And then he moves into part two of his song. And it's, it's called Grow Old With You. And he sings this song to his wife. And I was crying so hard, this song. I don't know, I'm such a crybaby these days. I don't trust my tears. <laughs> but he's, he sings this song called song, uh, Grow Old With You. And he talks about how he's, they've somehow been able to be faithful. They've never cheated on each other. They're devoted to each other's growth. And they're going to die this way, hand in hand. He sings this song. It's so beautiful, just images of him and his wife growing old together. And then he turns to the audience, and he does this little video montage of him just getting older as he performs, you know, from a young man. When he was like 14, he started stand-up comedy or something. And then now he's, you know, in his 50s. And he says, thank you for going old with me. Thank you for absorbing all my shenanigans and for letting me mature in front of you. And he turned his stories into this beautiful narrative. And he just pulled me out of space and time. And finally, I was seeing Adam Sandler from a divine perspective. (laughs) I know, this is so dumb. I told you, it's not the best story. It's just the most recent one. What about free wheelchair mission? You know, it's a, we just, I say we because I feel so invested in the ministry. Uh, we just sold the millionth wheelchair. Not sold, gave it away, the, most, the millionth wheelchair. It's so powerful. And this little girl, Floor, such a tragic story. She got a vaccination. And then she had a reaction. But they were too poor and too far from any help. And so she just got sick and she contracted meningitis and then now she's crippled for life. And then they deliver the millionth wheelchair to her. You know, she has this tragic stories, but it's not about the story or the stories anymore. Now there's a narrative that's overtaken her stories, a redemption narrative. And that completely redefines the story. We don't talk about the tragic angle anymore. The tragic angle is now just useful for the redemption narrative. I want to end with um, an image, and I want to end with uh, a verse. But the image is this. this. These are notes. I don't know anything about music, but I know this. Each note, each note that is played is important. It's not unimportant. It's really important. But somehow, that note that's being played right now is connected to the note that came before it. And then that, this note that's being played right now is somehow connected to the note that's going to come after that note. So these notes have to be in sync. Or it's not going to be a song. It's just going to be cacophony. It's just noise. But for notes to be a song, there has to be a composer. There has to be somebody with a vision for the song. And then even that song itself doesn't stand by itself because there isn't just one instrument. There are an infinite number of instruments that are playing one song. 
and all of the instruments and all of the notes and all of the sections of, they're all playing one harmonious, beautiful song. And for me, I'm convinced that there is no other orchestrator, no other composer that has the vision and the wisdom and the will and the love to carry out to the end this song that we call existence. And it's God. God is the lone figure that understands the whole song. And it's his narrative. It's his story. And we are all a part of it. Your life may feel like notes that don't sound like a song. But if you will consider, acknowledge, and trust, you will begin to have your eyes open to the world of grace in your life. And you're going to see intelligent design. There's a wise, wise creator behind your life. So I want to invite you to do that as we read these, uh, this final verse together. From 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says this. So then, from now on, we acknowledge no one from an outward human point of view. I want you to pray that right now in your heart. Say, God, I, from now on, I don't acknowledge a human perspective. It's not sufficient to explain how the universe works or how my life works or what my hopes are. The human perspective is insufficient. It's inaccurate. It's false. So then, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You are no longer subject to the second law of thermodynamics. Though your body wastes away, though from a human perspective you are tending towards chaos and death, inwardly you know that you are being renewed, that there is a God in your life. What is old has passed. Look, what is new has come. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making his plea through us. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. Would you bow your heads with me? Jesus, we put our trust in you today. Jesus, we acknowledge you today that you absorbed death, that death died with you. Chaos died with you. And you are ordering our life. You are ordering our existence. You have humanity in your hands. We believe this and we trust you for this. So God, do what only you can do. Redeem us and give us a redemption narrative, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.